Amen. Please be seated. Uh, I think me and Pastor Buster got our lines crossed a little bit. I'll be preaching from Galatians chapter 2. Um, sorry about that, Mr. Buster. Um, we're going to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Uh, while you're making your way there, there is one more thing that we need to address. Uh, tonight we had at 4 o'clock scheduled Next Steps class. Um, for those of you who are wondering what it looks like to be a member at Malvern Hill, uh, we're not going to do that today as Pastor Craig will uh, undoubtedly be out of town. Um, so, uh, so we're not going to do that. And the other thing we're not going to do is, uh, is uh, his equipping study this evening. Uh, if you're in uh, Craig's, uh, Pastor Craig's equipping study, um, he's not going to be here tonight um, to do that. But I want you to come back anyway, even if you're in one of the, in his study. This is your opportunity to just bounce into some other study and and take up residence there for uh, one Sunday. Um, if you have uh, young people in our student ministry, feel free to come upstairs. We we have cookies and stuff. Um, <laughs> During our equipment study. So uh, don't stay away because he's not here. Um, if you were coming to Next Steps, yes, stay away. But if you have an uh, equipment study with Craig, don't come. Galatians chapter number 2, verses 11 through 14. I hope you've made your way there. Uh, if you would, please stand with me in the honor of God's word as we read. This is Paul speaking to the Galatian church uh, about something that happened between he and Peter. He says in verse 11, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by his hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles, to live like Jews. Let us pray. Father God, we love you. Lord, it is uh, an awesome privilege um, to stand before you today. Lord, as your word has said, that uh, uh, there is none like you. There is none before you. You are above all things. You created all things. This morning, we're here to worship you and you alone. God, as we think about what it means to stand rightly and to view the world with right eyes, God, give us open hearts. Send your Holy Spirit among us to teach us to bring to mind all the things that, that we know to be true. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Standing and seeing rightly. That would be the title of uh, this sermon this morning. Standing and seeing rightly. What happens when you stop doing that? What happens when you stop seeing the world with gospel eyes? Now, uh, what happens when you take off uh, the corrective lenses that God has given you? What if you've never gotten them to begin with? It's hard to see the world and understand what's really happening without seeing it the way that God has created it. 
and the way that his son holds it all together, as Pastor Buster read. It's hard to do that. Seeing the world rightly, having the right outlook is important. It's just as important as it would be to wear the right corrective lenses in your glasses. I don't know when it happened, but a couple of years ago, it got really cool to be wearing glasses. And even some, I watch on television, they're doing their interviews after football games or basketball games. They got glasses on that don't even have lenses in them. I'm not saying they're lost, but that's what it's like to not know what you're looking through and not have any idea or any corrective lenses. But the gospel gives us everything we need to, to know and everything and how we need to see. But what happens when you don't know the gospel or what happens when you've taken them off? We're going to read this morning and understand that the serious consequences. Peter stood condemned, but the grace of God was at work through Paul. And Paul was an instrument of use in this situation to protect not only his brother, but also to protect the gospel as it has been handed down to us for centuries. God, who for his glory and our good, has at every instance when the gospel was threatened been there with someone to defend it. God sovereignly places people as instruments of use when they are in need in order to uphold the truth of the gospel, in order to work and honor Jesus for his glory, which belongs to no other. This is one of those really important times this is right when the church is getting going. The, you know, Jesus has died and the church has been birthed and you can read throughout Acts as all these things are happening. And right in the middle of Acts, if you've read that book, this is where we would be with this confrontation, this event at Antioch. In verse 11, it says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, now here Paul's continuing to roll out. I have to back up a little bit because y'all don't know where we are in the book. Paul's continued to roll out his testimony, how God has used him, what he's been doing. And he's telling the church at Galatia about everything that the gospel stands for. This is his autobiography. And in, verse, in, in these verses, and in chapter 2, you can read. See, right before this, uh, there was the, the Jerusalem council. The time where Paul went to Jerusalem and made sure that the gospel that he was preaching was in line with the preaching of all the other apostles. That he wasn't saying something they weren't. That freedom and salvation and forgiveness and reconciliation to a holy God only happens through right relationship with Christ. Through faith. Because God loved us. See, at the Jerusalem Council, right there at the start of chapter 2 in this, in this book of Galatians, they stood with him in a crucial time, and they affirmed everything that Paul was. Peter, James, all the guys that walked with Jesus and who became the pillars of the church. But when tradition and when favoritism and when racial discrimination threatened the gospel of Jesus Christ and him who was crucified... That gospel of grace, they became ununified and started unraveling. Things started happening. But Paul says when Peter came to Antioch, it was altogether a different story. He says he had to oppose him, and he did it to his face. He said, I opposed him to his face. 
That word uh, opposed is a word called, uh, in Greek called antihistemi. It means stood opposite or stood against. Paul says, I antihistemite him. I anti-stood. It's the same word we read in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, when we put on our armor of God. But on the whole, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Paul's the opposition. And on the other side, there's Peter. Think about this. These giants of the church. Peter, who Jesus looked at and said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Paul, who he appeared to on the Damascus Road, who birthed the church to all the, the nations and the Gentiles. These two giants stand opposed to one another, opposite, face to face. Recognize this posture that Paul has, though. Now, don't think of it as uh, Paul is bowing up at Peter, looking for a fight even. This is the same kind of posture and the same kind of stance that a parent might have. That you know better than that stance that you give your kids. When you see them do something wrong and you look at them like, are you kidding me? I just said, you know better. All those one-liners that we throw at our kids that bounce right off of them and never stick. This is that same stance. He's loving Peter. He's pointing out a fault in love. He's teaching and he's exemplifying what it means to not only stand for what is right, but to stand against maybe even another Christian. He's holding somebody accountable, and that's Paul's stance against Peter in love. But he's being used to protect the gospel. There's not a whole written account of the New Testament yet. We don't have all that we have now. Very few, if anything, has been written as far as from the apostles. So God is seen here as using Paul as a protector. He's protecting the gospel from Peter and all who followed him. See how poisonous hypocrisy can be, though? One man turned and said, let's do it this way. And even Barnabas and all the others stood and said, okay, I'm going to do it like Peter's doing it because that's Peter. One man changed the way that he saw the world, took off his lenses or took out his glasses. Paul knew you couldn't do what Peter was doing in order to be in right standing with God. Paul knew that in order to, to be in right standing with God, then everybody was equal at the foot of the cross. Now, the confrontation in here is the fact that all of a sudden, when people showed up, that thought differently than Peter, that said things differently maybe than the gospel said, Peter changed the way that he did things because of who was around. Somebody else walked in and all of a sudden he was a different guy. Every time that grace has ever been threatened, God has been there to defend it. His work for His glory, as Pastor Buster read, that in Christ, all things are held together. In the gospel, all things are made clear. 
and we understand all things, that there is no other name written among men by which we may be saved. There's no other way to be saved. So when Peter goes off the rails, his wrong is that he fell back into being somebody that he was before. He knew exactly what the gospel meant. He fell back into tradition, to the way that things used to be. All of a sudden, it was easier because of who walked in to be who he used to be than who Jesus had made him out to be. Because he got around a different person or a different group of men. They walked in, and all of a sudden, Peter was threatened. Apparently, he was worried about what they might say or how he might be perceived. All that, that he had happened to him, everything that he had seen, and he fell back into who he used to be, to tradition, to his Jewish roots. Paul opposed him to his face, not behind his back where he couldn't see him. Not to start a fight, not as holier than thou, not to divide, but as an instrument of use. That means when you have a gospel problem with another Christian, that's how you do it. You don't have to ask anybody else. You might ask how, for their advice and as to how to confront this person, but you don't have to go around them and try to fix it. When you see the world through gospel eyes, in forgiveness and in love and in grace and in unmerited favor then you don't have to look at anybody and say well maybe if I talk to this person then I can fix it that way I don't have to go to talk and have that hard conversation look at the two postures Peter opposite Paul Paul stood against him because Peter stood condemned Peter had been brought low the realization of what had just happened had, had probably washed all over Peter. And he had to have felt like uh, that child who disappoints their parents or that individual who knows the right thing to do fails to do it. And when it hits them, it washes all over you. And the word right there is that you become low from the knowledge of your experience. Paul brought the knowledge from experience to bear the knowledge both had. And both had it from experience. Peter was condemned in the sense that he wasn't, not in the sense that he had lost his salvation, but in the sense of being guilty of sin by taking a position he knew was wrong. He no doubt also stood condemned as a sinner in the eyes of the Gentile believers, all those people who he was acting a certain way and in fellowship with and he was in good standing with and, and he was uh, drawing together in Christ. No doubt that he took away from their eyes who he had become because they were all grounded in the gospel of grace and no doubt they were perplexed and deeply hurt by Peter shunning them because somebody else walked in before Peter's compromise could do serious damage God used Paul to nip the arrow in the bud in doing so he also provided Paul with perhaps the most convincing proof of apostolic authority God has a purpose. He's been in the worst situations and circumstances. And what could have been tragedy, he used for his glory, and he strengthened his church. 
It was all well and good. And then, and then Peter's reputation was threatened because he started becoming something he wasn't. It says, for he regularly ate with the Gentiles, in verse number 12, before certain men came from James. Peter was doing what was right consistently. He was doing it every day. He was doing it regularly. It doesn't say that James came. It says people came from James. Certain men. So why would Peter's actions change when they showed up? What makes our actions change when others are around? We're not okay with who we are all of a sudden, right? Who we are and what we believe and, and all that Christ has done for us is not enough when that person is around or when this person shows up. And instead of grounding our faith in, in what we know to be true, we start putting on something and believing a lie. And the problem is you can never prove a lie to be true. You can never be something you're not. There's no truth in it. You can try all day, all year, all your life to be something, but you can never actually do it. Paul says when they came, he withdrew. Peter became subordinate under the authority of not the gospel, not God, not his relationship with Christ, but of, under the authority or subordinate to certain men. Peter lost his confidence in who he was. It seems Peter began by declining one or two opportunities to eat or fellowship, and over time he was denying all, which is not only sneaky, but it's also devious. Because he would have to make up uh, certain stories as to why you couldn't. All of a sudden, you're we're one person last week, and this week you're not that person because somebody else showed up. And so you have to actually start justifying why you're wrong and trying to sell that as being right. And the problem is, it's not true. Peter's seeking shelter and safety in order to protect his image and reputation with those from James, those from Jerusalem. And when it all comes together, we can see what Paul meant. He's saying that Peter drew back under the authority of those certain men. He went in retreat. He was shunned. He shrank. He backed off. He compromised who he was and what he believed in. He separated himself. But in order to be separated from something, you must have been joined to something previously, right? Right? You had to have known what was right before you were separated. The final two words of verse 12 says, because he feared. Fear after pride is the devil's most played instrument. Fear after pride will be the devil's most played instrument. He feared, he fled, and he avoided because he felt inadequate. Peter's confidence in who he was changed because of who he was around.
Peter, who under divine inspiration declared Christ to be the son of the living God, the same one who boldly declared he would rather die than deny the Lord Jesus. But before night was out, he had already done it three times. And after that, he went fishing. This is why we love Peter. Because Peter makes all the same mistakes we do. We identify him faster than we will ever identify with Paul. Peter's sometimes scared. Peter's sometimes fearful. Peter's sometimes completely devoid of conviction. Peter who's sometimes saying the wrong thing. Peter changed here based on his circumstance. And that was his sin. The sin of hypocrisy. And see, here's what happens when one person, one leader, one family member, one head of the family, mother or father, begins to be something and act in certain ways when others are around. The same things happen. Verse 13 gives a particular word. It says the rest of the Jews join his Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is play acting. It's disguising. It's dressing yourself up. When someone in particular is around, this pictures Peter and the others as being mask wearers. I don't want you to see who I am because I'm scared of what you might think. I don't want you to see who I am because I'm scared of what you might believe. I'm a, I don't want you to see who I am because I'm not so confident in what I believe that I'm willing to stand for it. And what happens when leaders do this? It says, people follow. Even Barnabas was led astray. Here's the obligation for those who see with gospel glasses. You don't oppose behind somebody's back. You don't confront them in secret. As loud as their sin was in hypocrisy, that's as loud as you make your opposition. God had prepared and placed Paul, and it says, but when I saw... Paul viewed with spiritual perception from the lens of truth. But when he saw that they were deviating from the gospel, that word deviating means changing direction. So when they got out of line, when they ceased to be straight-footed in their walking, when Peter put on his mask and began to do things a little crooked, Paul opposed him. Began to walk not in the conformity of God's truth, but Paul says he deviated. But see, the truth is that God shows no partiality. Who Peter was was enough the whole time, not because of what, anything that Peter had ever done, but because of everything that Jesus had accomplished. The gospel is the, the, the perfect life and death and resurrection, but it's also our need. And that's the part of the gospel that we often leave out. Leave out. We say the gospel is everything that Jesus did, but everything that Jesus did is nothing without us saying why he did it, and that's our need. 
God shows no partiality. Any deviation is sin. So he confronted Peter in front of everyone because Peter's sin was in front of everyone. That should scare us a little bit. That should make us get real right about what we believe and what we think. As Christians, this is how you do it. Paul says in verse 14, If you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's break that down. If you, Peter, who are of Jewish descent, live like a person of non-Jewish descent, meaning you evidence that the gospel of Christ doesn't have a favorite race or nationality, that you, Peter, were saved by grace and not by race, that age, color, and gender, and money, and looks, and social standing, or anything like it is not what saves you, that the gospel does not favor anyone. How can you ask those who live and don't favor eating certain foods or favor being born a certain color? How can you ask them to do this? On what grounds? Paul points out that Peter was a Jew that he came to Antioch and he lived and did things consistently right in line with the gospel, not making social or ethnic distinctions, not saying that he was better or worse or any other thing, but in perfect love and fellowship. He associated with all. He lived not like he was born, but like he became. See, we were all born and certain ones of us are taller. I'm 5'11". I hate saying that. I've told our young people all the time, I hate saying I'm 5'11". I really do. Because with shoes on, I'm six foot. And there's something about saying that you're six foot that makes me feel better. <laughs> but I was born to be 5'11". If God wanted me to be six foot, by God, I would be. If God wanted me to be shorter, I would be. If I wanted to be faster or smarter... Bigger or smaller, I would be. And to act differently is to put on my own mask. I still need jerk when somebody says, how tall are you because I want to be six foot, but I can't be because it's a lie. And the problem is, I can never actually prove to you that I'm six foot tall because I'm not. But everything that I am, I am in, in Jesus and how God sees me and everything that I have become is not who I was born as. It doesn't matter as much how tall I am or what color my skin is or, or how good my speech is or, or any of those things. Because the real truth of the matter is if I needed to be more, I would be. But I don't be. I don't need any more. Because God's created me to be this. And he has you too. And when we struggle with who we are and can we have the convictions to stand for what is right, it's not about us. See, Peter was, was born a Jew, but he became something so much more. He became by grace and by the work of the Holy Spirit a child of God, a pillar of the church, founding member, epistle writer, God-glorifying, unbelievable, can't believe he actually got it all together and when he did, man.
Peter's transformation wasn't some miraculous change of race. He didn't become a new color. He was given a new heart. And just for a moment, he went to Antioch and he forgot that. And we all have. We've all had certain people walk in where we are and what we were doing. We've all, as our students maybe, eaten lunch at the wrong table and started doing and saying and acting as if all that Christ has done for us isn't enough. That we need to be just a little bit more. Our own six feet tall, whatever that is. Peter's transformation didn't change his race. He didn't become a new color. The Holy Spirit accomplished in Peter's heart was the loss of race distinction and gave him righteousness. Peter wasn't called by race. He was called by grace, unmerited favor. So what does that look like for us? This whole thing laid out in Paul's confrontation and and the mask wearing and everything. How do we apply this? What can we learn from Peter's failure and Paul's opposition Paul's bravery. From all accounts, everything that we, we know, Paul wasn't a big guy, but Peter was. Peter, it seems, was a, a fisherman, a great uh, pillar of the church. The people he hung out with, you know, for him to have any clout with them, to hang out with the sons of thunder and actually become their leader, he was something. Number one, we apply this to our lives as ministers of the gospel. We can commit serious transgressions. Sometimes being guilty of the very errors and sins that we once so strongly stood against. We can forget that all that Christ has done for us and fall back into, I need to be just a little bit more than I am. God didn't do enough when he made me. We can forget that he did everything when he saved you. The same Peter who preached the spirit-empowered sermon at Pentecost and through whom the crippled man outside the temple was healed fell and sinned. And he did it just like we do it. Number two, we learn that faithfulness involves more than believing what is right. It involves believing and doing what is right. Paul had to stand against his friend when he was wrong. Young people, not young people, it's okay to oppose someone to their face when you're calling them back to grace. Number three, we see that God's word determines what is right and wrong. Christians don't make truth. Jesus did. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. And you are all that you need to be. And if you needed to be more, you would be. Number four, we learn that falsehood is not to be ignored regardless of the consequences that opposition may bring. I can't imagine there were many lining up behind Paul saying, I'll stand with Paul on this one. Not when all those guys from James were there. Not when it was Peter opposite Paul. Sometimes you're going to stand by yourself. When the falsehood strikes at the heart of the gospel, as did this heresy, 
Opposition is more imperative. You must stand. Even leading Christians who continue in sin are to be rebuked in the presence of all, so the rest also may be fearful of sinning. 1 Timothy 5, verse 20. Lastly, we see that truth is more important than harmony and peace. Now, God is a God of unity and reconciliation. But if you have to rub somebody the wrong way in order to call them back by grace, then that's what we do. No matter what is beneficial or what the prospect might be, we seem to know that compromise will never do anything but weaken the church. It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what the people around you say. Peace that is preserved by compromising God's truth is pseudo-peace of the world and is not of God. We cannot compromise what has been given to us in God's word, the gospel. Look at what Paul had to put on the line in order to be who he was. Paul had to stand against Peter. When Jesus said, who am I? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's who Paul was standing against. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood have not revealed this, but my father is in heaven. And then he said, upon you, Peter, I will build my church. Paul stood against who we may argue was his best friend. He stood against a fellow Jew from Jerusalem. But he did it because he did what was right, no matter who it was. See, we have truth, and it's been left to us. And if we needed more than this, then we would have it. But even Jesus said, it is good for you that I, will go, that I go away so that when I do, the Holy Spirit may come and he may bring to remembrance all the things that I said and did. See, we don't have first Jesus and second Jesus and third Jesus. We have first John, second John, third John, first Peter, second Peter. We have the epistles of Paul. Jesus said it is better to have the New Testament in your hand and the Holy Spirit in your heart than it is for me to be with you. And that's power that's how you can know that you can be right in all situations and circumstances once you put on the right glasses get the right lenses and look through it and say this is the world that God has left now if you've never picked up those glasses then it's going to be hard and the only reason I can think that you have never picked up and put on the, the lens that is the gospel is because maybe You didn't know you needed it. You didn't know you were seeing the world the wrong way. And it's because your sin has separated you. And in that moment of separation, and then there's all all these moments of separation, you have this longing in your heart to understand what this says because this is true. Jesus died so that you can live. And that is true. And he knew that we needed it. And he knew it was better for us to have this and the Holy Spirit in our hearts than to have him with us. 
If you haven't put on those glasses or you need to readjust or if you haven't uh, done what was right in, in the side of your family, if you've led them astray by your hypocrisy, if you've done it at work, stand and repent. Ask God to forgive you and give you the conviction from his truth to stand for next time. But if you've never understood what it means to be a child of God and to be saved by grace through faith, what is true is that he'll save you today because he loved you so much that Jesus came for you. As we stand and sing, I'm going to pray. If the Holy Spirit moves you, you come. Dear God, we thank you so much for loving us. We thank you, God, for the great truth that is the gospel. We thank you for the life, the death, and the resurrection of a holy, perfect, and blameless Christ. God, we thank you that you did all of that for our great need. And that there is no other reason, no other way that we can be reconciled to who you are. That you created us to be all that we need to be. And who we are is beautiful, but we're broke and we need fixing. In these moments, God, if, if one needs to be fixed to come to know you as your, their Lord and Savior today, let it happen. Let your Holy Spirit move them. If they need to put on, uh, take off their mask and put back on the gospel of grace, let it happen. In the name of Jesus, amen. How great the cat.